Greetings. Thank you all for returning to this week's new study episode titled Encouragement in Persecution, Part 2. I am Pastor John, welcoming our returning international audience. We also extend a warm welcome to all our new listeners here for the first time. Thank you all for listening. May you all be blessed of God. Before we start, I would like to announce our new presence on the social media network, Tumblr. That is spelled T-U-M-B-L-R. We have a public-facing Tumblr page, so you do not need to be a Tumblr member to see our page. Please check below our program notes for a link to Tumblr. You can also find a link to Tumblr on our webpage. Please enjoy our new presence. We have also fixed our iTunes or Apple Podcast account, so it is now linked to our present internet presence at pinecast.co. Our Pinecast link is in the description, or you are hearing this there now. You may have to rescan or search for us again, but we are still on iTunes. You can also find a link in the description of any episode description to our public iTunes site if you are not an iTunes subscriber. See our podcast description for all the links to everything we are doing on the Internet. I would also like to mention again, for clarity, that all the short links to other things we are doing are in each episode description. This week we have placed all our links in each episode description. Just scroll down if your screen requires it to see these links. We keep our episode description as short as possible, making these shortened links as easy to find right below our episode description as is possible. We hope you enjoy our increasing internet presence. Last week, we started examining 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-12. through 12. However, our study was confined to verse 5 due to the wealth of biblical knowledge we found. Significantly, we found the issue of it not sounding all that promising and hopeful especially to those who are not saved in Christ. What is up with that? We also found, in Barnes' New Testament Notes commentary, these comments, quoting, Endurance of affliction in a proper manner by the righteous is a proof that there will be a righteous judgment of God in the last day. The persecutions which they endured and the manner in which they were born furnished a proof that there would be a righteous judgment and also afforded an indication of what the result of that judgment would be. This week, we continue examining 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1 of this book. 
again. Verses 1 through 4 are Paul's salutation and thanksgiving. Verses 5 through 12 are where this study is found. This week, we start in verse 6. This passage of examination in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 reads, For it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to you who are being afflicted to give rest together with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. With flaming fire he will mete out punishment on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will undergo the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his strength when he comes to be glorified among his saints and admired on that day among all who have believed. And you did in fact believe our testimony. And in this regard we pray for you always that our God will make you worthy of his calling and fulfill by his power your every desire for goodness and every work of faith that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Here is where the subject of being caught up in the air with Christ in his rapture of his saints before the tribulation period can get greatly blurred with his second coming, which occurs after the tribulation period ends. These two events are definitively documented. However, to the modern person's mind, it may be less clear today than in days past. First, his rapture is in the air or on the clouds. Secondly, we find in Scripture his full, in-person, second coming at the end of the tribulation period by Jesus setting foot on earth once again. This does, without any doubt, cause grievous misunderstanding of what the Bible is telling us about these two events. This is due to how we interpret Scripture without any help guiding our interpretation of what we read. This is why I use extensive helps. Those who wrote of these events understood them very well. They use language that, although definitive in their day, is a bit blurry to us today, if not outright in a situation that we just simply can no longer understand it. The two subjects seem to crisscross each other in confusing ways. This has helped cause many changes and differences in how we interpret what we read in the Bible with regard to prophecy and future events yet to happen. With this understanding, it is very important to very carefully read Scripture to properly understand what it is saying. The rapture and the second coming are two very distinct and individual events. Make no mistake in this regard. With that understanding, 
What is Paul talking about here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? Let's find out by starting at this week's beginning. Of note, verse 6 ends with a comma to continue the thought in verse 7, which we will examine also shortly. So, let us start in verse 6. It read, For it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Commentary on verse 6 reads, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. The sense is, there will be a future judgment because it is proper that God should punish those who now persecute you. It is not right that they should go unpunished and triumph forever. It is not an arbitrary thing, a thing which is indifferent, a thing which may or may not be done. It is a just and proper thing that the wicked should be punished. The doctrine is that the future punishment of the wicked is just and proper, and that, being just and proper, it will be inflicted. From Barnes New Testament Notes A bit redundant in the end of that commentary passage, but for you to truthfully see the point here. The present problem is for unsaved, unbelieving modern men and women to see themselves as requiring such punishment of God outside of his salvation. They are basically good, unchurched people who see God as a mythical entity to enforce good on earthly men and women, or as even unsaved church-going people. They believe in God as a real heavenly entity with little or no regard for earthly things because he is busy with more pressing heavenly-only issues. While far less than perfect, both of the aforementioned people groups, as well as others, still work at being good people. However, being without Christ, without his saving work in their lives, they cannot see that they are classified by the Bible, God's Word, as evil nonetheless. In the United States, Christians have done little to bring this wall down without it involving serious contention. So the unsaved fortify their wall of protection from such verbal contention. For this reason, the church of real believers finds less and less ability to offer salvation to the unsaved, but, basically, a good populace of Americans, and, quite frankly, around the globe. In order to bring the saving grace of God to these people, it is the church that needs to change, and not the unsaved people of concern. Their change will start when they become saved in Christ. So, it is not up to the saved to levy rules and forms of compliance on those who are unsaved as conditions for their salvation. Many saved people in my area will hotly contest that statement. However, it is an observation that bears great clarity in why the American church, 
in general and not all, is not gaining any ground and saving people along the way. Verse 7 continues the thought laid out in both verses, 6 and 7. Verse 7 reads, And to you who are being afflicted to give rest together with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. Here is one of those sticky points I mentioned earlier. Just what does Scripture mean when it says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels? This is why I use commentary and other Bible helps. This helps in finding such answers as what we need here. So, let us continue this further. First, what is this, quote, rest, unquote, that Scripture is talking about in this passage? Who is this, quote, rest, unquote, for? Is it the rest for God's people alone that we have been talking about and working to a more clear understanding? Commentary further clarifies. Rest. The future happiness of believers is often represented under the image of quote, rest, unquote. It is rest like that of the weary laborer after his day of toil. Rest like that of the soldier after the hardships of a long and perilous march. Rest like the calm repose of one who has been racked with pain. The word rest here means a letting loose, a remission, a relaxation, and hence composure, quiet, from Barnes' New Testament notes. Does that not sound like a kind of rest you would like to enter into? If so, there is only one way to enter into that rest, salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Why? Salvation in Jesus Christ is the only way to find that rest and find it eternally. However, notice when this rest occurs. It is the future happiness of believers often represented under the image of rest. How is the word future defined? Is it a close future as in some morrow in this lifetime? Or is it after we go home to be with Jesus? All good questions that need right answers. There are also two things to note in commentary. We should look more specifically at note two. The two notes are as follows. One, there is a fitness that they who are the friends of God should be treated as such, or it is proper that he should show himself to be their friend. 2. In this life it is not always clearly done. They are often less prospered and less happy in their outward circumstances than the wicked. There is, therefore, a propriety that in the future state God should manifest himself 
as their friend and show to assembled worlds that he is not indifferent to character or that wickedness does not deserve his smiles and piety incur his frown. At the same time, however, it will be owing wholly to his grace that any are ever admitted to heaven. From Barnes New Testament Notes Notice in the second comment what was said in where? This life, this is not always clearly done. They are often less prospered and less happy in their outward circumstances than who? The wicked. Seriously? What is up with that? You receive Christ as the Savior of your life, and you are, quote, often less prosperous and less happy than the wicked? That does not sound like the American promise levied by so many, encouraging you to enter into a life with Christ. They entice you by speaking of a life of great promise, wealth, and surety that extremely few born-again Christians in America have found at all. Yes, some do, and then swear in testimony that a particular pastor and or teacher is right in what they preach or teach. Yet, the Bible makes no such promise or promises for God to do such things in this life, that particular way, here on this fallen earth. Yet, promises to God's faithful are found in the Bible. The question no one asks is, when will God deliver those promises? Will it be in this here and now, or at a different and appointed time after this life? Or, some promises now and some later? No one asks these questions, and no one digs beyond the very satisfying answer presented by so many preachers and teachers. Our scripture passage here reads, quite to the contrary of a happy, fulfilling, and promise-filled life. Not that we, as God's chosen, are not without the power of God, not without the promises God has to bestow upon His own. However, it is scriptural to know that power comes to those who are truly humble in Christ. That means we may well not be affluent, promise-filled, shining examples of what changes God will render in our lives if we become saved in Him. Yet, when healing is needed, God's people will be able in Christ to pray for it and it will happen. One has to wonder what this kind of Holy Spirit gifting would accomplish in today's coronavirus or COVID-19 world. One can only wonder until God's people properly humble themselves before God so His Holy Spirit can work through His people in this regard just what will happen as an outcome. If his people just want to go back to how things were before coronavirus struck the world, one must ask, 
What has God's people learned from this global pandemic? To be clear, I am not suggesting we go out and expose ourselves to coronavirus to pray for those who need it. I am suggesting that we start properly. We can pray for family, friends, and those we do not know in our own safe place. God can heal or not whether we lay hands on the sick or not. I know because I have seen it happen either way, by the laying on of hands or not. Yet, God's healing came in both cases. He does the healing regardless of whether we lay hands on someone or not. Did he lay hands on every person he prayed for healing? If you cannot answer that question, read your Bible. Start in the Gospels. Yes, he touched many, but did he touch all he prayed for to receive healing? I have even prayed for people at a distance to be released from an evil spirit. And they were. We also want to look at the stumbling block here from many Christians. We saw this in item 2 from Barnes New Testament Notes Commentary. We read earlier, They are often less prospered and less happy in their outward circumstances than the wicked. This is where stumbling blocks that trip us up in our walk in Christ as his saved people are found. This is the nature of any stumbling block. While it is there, it is frequently not obvious. Sometimes it is something we can reason in our minds as something worthy of our promotion and investigation of making it better and or find a better place by its use in our life. This in no way makes it not a stumbling block. A stumbling block is nothing less or more than a stumbling block. It trips us up if we are little aware or completely unaware of its presence in our life, causing angst. It can also be in our full sight. We then defy its presence and march on regardless of whether it will cause us trouble, no matter how great that trouble may turn out to be. As many saved people believe, that's not good for God's people in any way. That, nonetheless, does not change anything with regard to how God has put this in place and how it works for us in this life with Christ. I also have to mention that in this life, not all of us are prosperous, living a life of ease, being happy, content in our present situation, displaying outward reasons why others should also become saved in Christ. You can see this anywhere in America you can go. I am really sure you can find it elsewhere as well. In this world, there are at least three classes of people in most places. The class of the rich, the middle class, and the poor. If I am poor or middle class, attempting to witness to rich people, it is either next to impossible or outright impossible. This is why some in Christ are rich, some in Christ are middle class, and why some in Christ are poor always. 
regardless of what some teach. So, all three common classes of people, the world over, have those who can witness to them from within their respective social classes. This is not an insult to anyone. Please understand this. It is, however, the truth in a fallen world such as ours today. Maybe I should restate that this way. Why, if I am rich, happy, and satisfied, why should I listen to a poor man witness the saving of my soul in Christ? Leastwise, in America, unless a poor man's witness is powerfully compelling, the rich man wants you out of his face. So here is the reasoning behind the world's three most common classes of people who are used by God to save more who are in those classes of people. I hope this is clear and you understand this. Being saved in Christ is not a means of changing your circumstances unless God blesses your life with wealth so you can witness his grace and mercy to the rich. If he does not, is he any less capable? Is he any less God? The answer to both those questions is a definitive no. Commentary may make this more clear. And to you who are troubled, this is, quote, It will be a righteous thing for God to give to you who are persecuted rest in the last day, end quote, as it will be and proper to punish the wicked so it will be right to reward the good. It will not, however, be in precisely the same sense. The wicked will deserve all that they will suffer, but it cannot be said that the righteous will deserve the reward which they will receive. From Barnes New Testament Notes If you have not seen it, I hope you can see it now. The wicked are happy in this life. Leastwise, for the most part, they then live a sorrowful eternity in hell. On the flip side, God's people live, mostly, a sorrowful life now, then, we who are undeserving reap eternal happiness. I think, if I have to suffer life for a preset amount of time here in this life, than to suffer for all eternity, I will take now, hands down. Is it not better to suffer only in this life than for all eternity? The Bible says the reasoning for salvation, or not, is that simple. Nothing more can be said in that regard. In closing, these comments from the new John Gill's exposition of the entire Bible bear relevance. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. This is another branch of the justice of God in rendering to them who are afflicted and persecuted for righteousness' sake, quote, rest, end quote, a relaxation or rest from persecutions, for a while at least, as the churches of Judea, Galilee, 
and Samaria had, from that persecution raised at the death of Stephen, and as the Christians had at the destruction of Jerusalem, which, though it was a day of vengeance to the unbelieving Jews, were times of refreshing to the saints, who were now delivered from their persecutors. Or rather, this designs a rest which remains for the saints after death in the grave and at the coming of the Lord and to all eternity, when they shall rest from all their toil and labor and be freed from sin and all disquietude by it and from the temptations of Satan and likewise from the persecutions of men. And this will be enjoyed in company with the apostles and other believers, and as it is some alleviation to the sufferings and afflictions of saints now, that the same are accomplished in others. So it will enhance the heavenly glory, rest, and felicity that they will be partners and sharers in it with the apostles of Christ Jesus and have the same crown of glory they have, and indeed their company and conversation will be a part of their happiness. Next week, we will continue our examination of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We did not get this far, but, as a reminder, again, verse 9 reads, They will undergo the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His strength. Not the rosy mental picture many of us may well be used to hearing. To find out why, play or download next week's episode. Next week's episode is titled, Encouragement in Persecution, Part 3. Download this last episode in this series from one of our podcast hosts, or follow direct links to these platforms on our website under the podcast menu item. Details follow. This study podcast is a wholly self-funded outreach presented by the Church of the Unchurched. Currently, an all-electronic Boston-based outreach uniting the community of lost, searching, lonely, and forgotten in Christ. We greatly appreciate serving our international audience. God bless you all. If you are visiting for the first time, welcome and God bless you. We look forward to the return of all our faithful listeners and new listeners. Thank you all so much. Please share our podcast with family, friends, and others you believe would find it a blessing. If you are unsaved, we truly hope you find God as well as receiving Him as Lord and Savior of your life. Please find a short link to our episode titled, How to Be Saved, at the bottom of any episode description. To learn more about us and who we are, give our episode titled, Introduction, About Us who we are, a listen. In that episode, you will learn more about us, who we are reaching out to, our mission, vision, ministry, and more. Again, 
A short link to this episode is found at the bottom of any episode description. All our links are now provided in each podcast episode listing starting on September 20th, 2020. You will find our podcast listings on any podcast listing page directing you to the episode you want to play. This year, we have decided to go with making Pinecast our primary host. We also added the Facebook-style social media site, Diaspora, to expand our internet presence. We have even added Tumblr with a forward-facing web page where you can get all our updates without having to log in. You will find that new link in each podcast listing starting on September 20th, 2020. If you go to our internet homepage under the podcast menu item, you can find many popular podcast platforms we are found on. When searching for us, please use the search phrase Church of the Un, insert dash symbol, Church. Again, Church of the Un, insert dash symbol, Church. To find us on a podcast platform like iTunes, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, or Spotify, to name a few. Please use the dash symbol and not the word dash when you search for us. We refresh all our feeds with every weekly episode upload on Sundays. These sites update our feed within 24 hours of our refresh. Our backup server is now listed in our show notes in each and every episode starting on September 20th, 2020. You can also go to anchor.fm forward slash unchurched. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. Until next week, this is Pastor John for the Church of the Unchurched.